Hello, and welcome to the Nature City Podcast, the show where we get to know our wild neighbors. In this episode, I sit down with Jeff Boone at the city of Saskatoon to talk about coexisting with the animals that call our city home. I'm Adrian Werner, your host and fellow naturalist. This is episode four, Animal Interactions. Let's put on our shoes and see what's out there. The first thing that I like to get people to do is say your name and the title that we want us to use in the podcast. Well, my name is Jeff Boone, and my title is Environmental Coordinator with the City of Saskatoon, but I was formerly part of Urban Biological Services in the Parks Division, where we did a lot of work with urban wildlife. Wonderful. And what got you interested in the work you do? I am a nature nut. In my family, our love and passion and interest in nature. It goes back a long ways. For me, I was really interested in entomology. And that's what brought me into the broader world of wildlife as I got more involved in municipal work. But I've always been interested in all things natural history and wildlife. Was there any sort of formative moment where you were like, yes, I know now that I am going to be an entomologist and naturalist? Yeah, I think it started with just a genuine interest in all things natural history. And then it was like, well, how do I turn that into a career? And entomology jumped off the page because there's a lot of different applications and a lot of ways in which natural history applies to practical human needs. So there's a wide breadth of opportunity in entomology. So that's how entomology became the focus. And then from there, I was just able to delve into topics of natural history. Well, that's really wonderful. And I know you are heavily involved in that public education piece and getting other people inspired in nature. And that's always really fun to watch. For sure. To this point, anyways, it's been most of my life's work. I love insects and trees and talking to people about them. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the common questions that you often get from people and how could you answer them? I guess on the wildlife front, what I noticed over the years is a lot of people are very surprised to learn about the abundance of urban wildlife that we have in Saskatoon. And then to a certain extent, wanting to minimize the impact on their life. For sure. (laughs) So then through your experiences with wildlife management, what are some of the causes of human wildlife conflict? The human side, there's a lot of misinformation around urban wildlife. And then on the animal side, because you have that citywide vantage point, so you can get a sense what kinds of conflicts are more likely to happen in given years and given situations. So there's these very large scale forces that are at play that I don't pretend to understand, but they cause populations of certain animals to rise in our city at different times. And then that causes people to see and have different types of interactions with those animals. And some of those interactions might be labeled as conflicts, I guess, depending on the perspective of the individual. Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you do a lot of population tracking then to predict and understand what conflicts might arise in the future? The biggest metric we use is call volume. As populations do rise up, it becomes quite noticeable because of just the volume of calls. And it tends to be very dramatic as a particular animal population is increasing. And it's not the best proxy for populations, but it works fairly well. We're not really rooted in research. We're more rooted in responding to concern. Definitely. One of the things we want to do with the podcast is do features on the animals that people will see the most. So talk to biologists and animal control folks and also citizens who see them and trying to paint big picture senses of what our most common urban animals are. So I'm wondering, what are the ones that you hear the most about? 
keep in mind our vantage point is probably different than other organizations because typically they'll call us to report information like wild animals that they consider potentially dangerous or ones that they consider to be problematic in and around their home. So that biases our sample. But the animals we get the most calls about would be coyotes and then probably skunks after that. Following skunks, it gets a little more diverse, but it could be porcupines, it could be raccoons, could be ground squirrels, depending on the year and circumstance, could be bats. That's one that can have a higher call volume at times. Bulls is one that it can be off the charts numbers to, to none at all. You know, the rising number of white-tailed jackrabbits in Saskatoon, the call corresponded. That, that's sort of the upper part of the list anyways, and then it sort of drops from there. So what's the next step in the process if you had someone call in an animal? In almost all cases, we're responding to injured animals or concerns about disease. And then there are also certain long-standing programs and service levels for certain wildlife populations. So it really depends on the animal and the circumstance. And then go into a flowchart that outlines the specific responses. So they do vary quite a lot depending on the animal and depending on the situation. Because there's services that extend onto private property. There's services that are public property only. There's services that or particular times a year. And then there are services that are very reactive based on an injured or potentially diseased animal. So how do you address situations where people have really different perspectives on whether animals belong in the city or how they belong in the city? We usually start with information about natural history of the animal to understand and contextualize what they're seeing, because in many cases, that helps a lot to understand that it's very common to see coyotes in our city, for example, because someone seeing a coyote in our city for the first time reacts very differently. But then when they get our perspective and understand that we have a very large urban coyote population, they are born here, they have territories here, they have all their needs met here, and they die here in the city. You know, they live their whole life cycle here. Contextualizing a concern in that light helps them understand that it's not so unusual to see a coyote. It's just, yeah, it was their first time seeing it. So that kind of information can right away dissolve someone's concern. And then from there, we talk about the nuances. For example, uh, skunks. You know, skunks have certain habits in the year when they're very mobile and when they're likely to be out with the offspring of the year. So there can be more nuanced natural history detail that we provide in different circumstances to help residents in our city understand what they're seeing. So that's usually step one. And then from there, we talk about service levels related to that specific thing that they're experiencing. It could be something that we don't have services on, or it could be something that we have very well-developed service levels for. Just off the top of your head, are there any particularly memorable situations that you are able to talk about? Uh, there's been a lot. And that's the one thing we really <laughs> realize in the wildlife program, because there's so many different animals that interact with our city and they end up in so many strange places. But, you know, there's young skunks caught in window wells. There was a fox in a septic tank. Uh, that was a tricky one. We had animals fall down excavations and work hard to try to get them out of that space and then released. There's handling badgers in the city and that's always unique because of course they've got that tough demeanor. I remember one story where uh, Red Fox got into a commercial office space and it was underneath the manager's desk. <laughs> and, and it was, so all the employees had left and then myself and a coworker, we were able to get in there and get the fox. So it was relatively easy to get it out of that space. The fox didn't want to be there. The commercial property owner didn't want it to be there. And we knew where that fox was denning. So it was a real easy fix and a happy ending for all parties involved, I think. Are there birds or reptiles or any other 
things you hear a lot about? We occasionally get snake calls. The few that I've had over the years have been hibernacula that have been disturbed as a result of development. Uh, so then it's just been an education piece on what's happening and why people are suddenly seeing a large number of snakes. But that's a fairly infrequent call. We get a lot of bird calls and we have a number of services on birds. Crows would be a bird where we've got a lot of history of involvement because they're very susceptible to West Nile. So they're a useful sentinel for the prevalence of the disease. Again, really varies on situations. You know, we've picked up injured pelicans before. And we work with our other partner organizations. We've had meetings on duck populations, for example, with the Canadian Wildlife Service and also the Wildlife Rehabilitation Society of Saskatchewan. That's a really important partner for us. But many meetings with them over the years, and they take a large number of calls related to birds, especially smaller birds. And so you've sort of talked a lot about the medium-sized mammals, yeah. like coyotes and foxes, badgers, things like that. The reason we sort of focus on that space informally, we deal with coyotes and smaller, and then the Ministry of Environment takes animals that are larger than coyotes. And also it kind of corresponds to, in the Wildlife Act, there's protected wildlife, and those typically have hunting seasons associated with them. Then there's a subset of unprotected wildlife. It's more common for municipalities to have services on unprotected wildlife. And there's a couple exceptions there. Coyotes are protected, but they tend to fall more under municipal jurisdiction. Badgers, same thing. So we kind of split informally on size, but it also corresponds with that legislation in the background, the Wildlife Act and protected versus unprotected wildlife. So things like moose and deer and cougars would be something that you wouldn't find yourself dealing with. Exactly. Easy calls, a redirected ministry. Are there things like um, wasps or maple bugs that you ever get called about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been kind of focusing more on the wildlife topic here. And we usually define wildlife in our unique way, which is vertebrate wildlife. But yeah, I mean, on the invertebrate front, we get tons of calls about all sorts of different things, depending again, really on the populations that are high in a given year. This year was an exceptional year for bumblebees, had more bumblebee calls than I've ever had by far. And again, it's just how they interact with people's homes. So it, it makes it very likely to get calls about them. I mean, they nest in dryer vents and right around people's houses and all sorts of cavities. And just this year was an exceptional year for them. Which given all the talk about bumblebee and bee population declines, that must be in some ways encouraging to get a lot of calls about them. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know most of the bees that we have in town are native, but also not species of concern from what I see and what I get calls about. But yeah, I'm sure there are others out there. And, and it's definitely a group that's under careful watch federally and internationally um, because of the pressures that they face. But yeah, so it is nice to see. And, and for the most part, bumblebee calls are explaining the natural history of bumblebees. And when residents understand the nesting behavior, and this isn't a forever situation, then that helps them sort of manage the period of time where it's disruptive to their life. Yeah. And I think that fits well with my next question, which is, are there things that people can do to reduce the likelihood that a wild animal would become a problem or have to be removed? You know, for the most part, you could summarize it down to one point. It's like where there's places where, say, your house needs to vent, having intact mesh or devices that exclude the animals from your home, that is very, very useful and helps prevent conflict, especially the conflict where animal populations move into a home. That's the kind of conflict that most people are very concerned about. So I think 
exclusion just generally. I mean, whether it's gates on fences, fences to the ground, even a shed, if it's on concrete versus old topsoil. Well, old topsoil is very desirable for skunk denning. Whereas if it's on concrete or crushed rock or some other media that is not so easy to dig in, then it's not going to be skunk habitat. Exclusion just right across the board in all its forms. But as much as people can make sure all of those sort of things are secure and operational, that makes a huge difference in keeping animal populations out of their homes and immediate yard, if that's what they desire. I know people, of course, feed birds and things. I'm wondering if there are any other sort of waste management things that people could do. Oh, yeah. Good point. Definitely. Uh, So, for example, coyotes in particular are very attracted to fallen fruit in the winter. It's a really important winter food source for them. So removing fallen fruit from your yard is important in reducing the chances that you're going to have coyotes in your yard in the winter. And that goes for many animal populations. Removing food sources and making sure that they're taken out of the yard Fruit trees, for example, are cleaning up underneath fruit trees. Composters, making sure that those are properly turned is very useful to minimize the chances that animal populations move in. In that case, mostly mice. And then there's certain things in compost as well that are very attractive to wildlife. So avoiding putting meats in compost is fairly important. But for the most part, what we see is a lot of animal populations attracted to fallen fruit. What you said made me think about how there are definitely some animals we don't want in our yards and some that we do want in our yards. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that like I probably wouldn't want a skunk in my backyard, whereas Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily be all that upset about a fox. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether the city sort of has any guidelines on animals that they think are acceptable for people to have out and about in their yards, because I can imagine that's a big source of conflict between neighbors. Yeah, for sure it is. And everyone has, for the most part, their own line. And the city doesn't do a lot of weighing in on what one neighbor can do versus another in terms of promoting or excluding wildlife from their own property. For the most part, there isn't regulations, at least municipally, around that. So everyone draws their own line around what they want in their yard in terms of wildlife. And for some, gunks would not be a problem. And for others, it just won't work. And it really depends on their use and what they're accustomed to and what they want to see in their yards. That's really interesting. And I wonder how much that would affect the territories of those animals, the people who are trying to, you know, really strongly push them away versus the ones who are like, I love these animals. (laughs) Yeah, I think for the most part of the animals that we spend a fair amount of time dealing with. The ranges exceed one yard, but certainly if you have an area that is amenable to skunks and it's what the skunk is looking for and that resident doesn't like the skunk there, then it's very likely to be a pretty good match for the two of them. And And the skunks will inevitably find those spaces and successfully rear offspring in those spaces and that will continue as long as that skunk continues kind of thing. I'm really happy to be talking about this because I think it's really interesting to learn more about the sort of humans navigating the fact that they're animals in their yard. So what are some of the innovative things that uh, cities can do to manage the wildlife that are in the city? Well, one of the really interesting projects I learned about a number of years ago, I can't recall the city, but I know it was in Colorado. Coyotes can be occasionally uh, problematic depending on the habits that they're adopting. So if they establish a den site in an area that has high traffic, they will especially certain times of year, get very, very aggressive protecting that den site. 
using scare tactics, you can modify that animal's behavior. So through a very concerted effort of this community, they were able to switch coyote activity from being primarily day active to being primarily night active. Coyote behavior is modified by something as simple as placing a bright red chair in the middle of your backyard. They're really sensitive to change in their environment. And just that new object and the uncertainty around that new object will make them avoid that space entirely. So there's a lot of really interesting things you can do to modify coyote behavior and reduce the likelihood of having negative encounters between typically coyotes and dogs, but could be coyotes and people. There's a lot of little things that can make a big impact. Are there things at the citywide level that you could do as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do educate people on that. Um, and that is a really important thing to do when interacting with an animal, particularly if coyote is holding its ground, hazing it and acting aggressively towards it is very important. Because in that standoff, if it learns that it can stand down the opposition, as opposed to the other way, it will embolden the coyote in future interactions. And it's usually almost always triggered by someone having a dog because coyotes see dogs as specific threats, and especially a dog close to a den site. So it is very important in these situations to assert oneself because canids are really responsive to that kind of thing. And establishing that dominance in that interaction is very useful for minimizing the chances of that coyote upping its aggressive tactics in these situations. I don't think we've ever gone as far as trail closures, but we certainly do put some strongly worded advisories, particularly if they're walking dogs in certain areas uh, around an active coyote den site at certain times of the year, because there is just a relatively narrow window in time where coyotes get very aggressive in their defense of the den site, and there can be more negative interactions in situations like that. I seem to remember having seen signs about active beavers in locations. Oh, yeah. What's the reason that those signs get put up? I mean, for the most part, we see that on secondary trails in the Miwasan Valley where there isn't a lot of tree work that is done because they sort of zigzag through the valley. And if there's beaver activity, there can be hazard trees as a result of that. And so the signage is really just to warn people that beaver activity can generate those potentially hazardous trees that can fail in the secondary trail spaces. It's a little different uh, in terms of the standard for park trees and those, there's usually more active protection of those trees through caging and then also more rapid removal of trees that are obstructing a path, especially the main Miwasan Trail or other park paths. But usually beaver activity signs are just there to generally warn people that there could be beaver activity. Beavers themselves, they also can be fairly aggressive towards dogs, but for the most part, it's when they create hazard trees, that's the that's the big concern. Interesting. It yeah. sounds like a lot like this work is really on the front lines of mediating the human-animal relationship. Oh, yeah, for sure it is. Absolutely, yes. That's That's very much where the Urban Biological Services Department sits. It's dealing with many individual interactions between people and wildlife. I know that a lot of cities have talked about how Urban areas can also act as a refuge or a habitat for additional species. Are there ever, ever habitat improvement initiatives or things that you do to draw wildlife in? I think so. I mean, it's not an area that I'm as familiar with, but I mean, now 
working with sustainability and efforts like the Green Network and connectivity through our city and allowing wildlife populations to to flourish and move through. Those are all initiatives that are happening at different levels of the city and different departments. The role for the most part of urban biological services is just, as you said, it deals with that specific person wild animal interaction and how to ensure that that interaction is a positive experience for the animal and for the resident. And it's fairly narrow in its focus. And I'm not as familiar with the broader initiatives that talk about animal populations and natural areas and population stuff that's going on there. When you're sort of in those moments dealing with an individual animal that's stressed or where it shouldn't Are there things that you've learned on interacting with them in that moment that really helped you as you've been doing that work? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, lots of people, they do ask me frequently, oh, you're, you know, you're willing to go into that space. There's a coyote in that space. And I know just based on my experience now, I would much sooner go into a small confined space with a coyote than I would with a raccoon, (laughs) you know, just based on their tendencies in these situations. A coyote will take the last inches remaining to just skirt away and escape as easily as possible and extricate itself from the situation, which is really useful behavior. Whereas raccoons, they very inclined to stand their ground and very inclined to protect what's theirs, you know, not as inclined to run. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons for that in their biology. But yeah, it's interesting learning a little bit how different animals respond in different situations. I might call you back again to talk a little <laughs> bit more about it when, when I'm doing more yeah, animal features, because I would be yeah. really interested to know that. Since I know that I'm putting together an episode on beavers, mm. do you have any ways of interacting with beavers uh, that you found to be useful? I mean, for the most part, our beaver management focuses on tree protection, because that is the main concern is beavers that create hazard trees, which become a potential risk to public safety. Uh, So we spend a lot of energy each year caging trees and then going and adjusting cages as trees grow to prevent girdling. That's a lot of our work. And there is also other management plans beyond that with beavers. There is a trapping program that happens in the River Valley that it's used more as a last resort to reduce beaver populations when caging isn't effective. But for the most part, those are the two major components. And I would say that the caging is really the lion's share of the work there. What's the animal that you think you've spent the most time reaching down holes for or (laughs) trying to get out of a place? Oh, I mean, that'd be skunks. I mean, it'd be skunks overwhelmingly. Skunks is a very significant part of the program, has been for a long time. Ground squirrels was also a longstanding program. So yeah, I guess those are probably the ones that we've spent the most time on. Again, coyotes, fairly frequent too. Yeah. Do you have to make yourself small or big or any sort of changes? <laughs> are you talking quietly to them? Are you like, come on, skunk, <laughs> or, or silent? Oh, in the case of skunks, uh, well, we use a baited trap. Okay. We just use a baited trap. And it's it, it's in uh, kind of a partnership that forms with the resident who's issued a trap. And they're responsible for monitoring that trap. And it's kind of issued to them. But our technicians work really closely with that resident to explain and set up the trap and explain to them their responsibilities with respect to monitoring that trap yeah really cool stuff oh i feel like i did your great question of like best stories real injustice because there's so many i mean i remember very fondly when we watched a weasel jump up and stare down a rottweiler in a backyard rottweiler much 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 bigger than a weasel but this weasel with just its aggressive mannerisms terrified this very large very aggressive dog pretty amazing to see 
animals do what they need to do in these different situations. But it's nice to be able to get that weasel out of that space. <laughs> and as neither the dog nor the weasel really wanted to be there, uh, nor the resident nor us. So I mean, it's, it's great when it's out. But yeah, there's a lot of different examples of stories that our technicians have seen over the years that are really unique. And it's a vantage point that I think a lot of municipal employees don't get to see. And I think speaking for myself, for sure, I'm very happy to have had all of these really hands-on experiences with different wild animals it's really taught me a lot. Yeah, and how do you think that experience has changed your perspective on wildlife? It's, it's taking it off the page and into real life. Say you're reading about behavior of a particular wild animal and then you get to see it in life. It just gives it new meaning. And our group, we're all very passionate about wildlife and understanding wildlife. Yeah, I mean, anyone has an encounter and it's a story that's shared immediately amongst us, you know, because they're all so unique and we learn so much from these different situations, you know, each time because there's so many different ways to approach a situation. And knowing that the network this time and the other time it was the pole snare and this time it was just placing a bucket over it or the blanket. It seems like every situation has a different outcome, and we learn a lot each time. Yeah, you're you're like the wildlife emergency first responders too. You get a call, you don't know what you're getting yourself into exactly, but have a tool set to deal with it. Yeah, that's right. I think we're fortunate in Saskatoon to have a group that is able to respond in the way we are. I don't think all cities have that, and I, I do think it's a very valuable service, particularly when some of the volunteer organizations are really stretched thin. And it's great to have a certain amount of service that just comes from the municipality. So do you mean the service level or the way you approach it? Oh, I think both. I mean, having a service level that's well-defined and then also having staff that are very motivated and very invested in the area of protecting urban wildlife and minimizing conflict between wild animal populations and people. I think those are the two key things. Because in the case of wildlife, it's really hard to draw a clean box around the service level because there's so many different situations. So I think having staff that are willing to tackle these unique situations is a really key part of why Urban Biological Services Program is successful. I'm wondering, is there anything else that I haven't talked about yet that you'd like to talk about? Geez, you reminded me of a few good things there when you were talking about exclusion. <laughs> uh, we talked about modifying the space, and then we talked about removing attractants all being very important. Uh, I think for the most part, those are out in public spaces, but around people's yards, removing attractants and ensuring your yard is secure are probably the two most important things. I'm trying to think, is there a critter that we haven't really chatted about? Um, uh, you had mentioned early on that you knew quite a bit about trees. I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but was there anything particular that you're thinking about? Yeah, for the most part, it's insect and disease threats to trees, to urban forest. And that is where I have over the last three years, anyways, in my city career, spent most of my time. And it's a big part of what Urban Biological Services does as well. So that's Dutch elm disease, emerald ash borer, both, yeah, cottony ash psyllid. That's right. Yeah, those would be big three. And Dutch elm disease this year, we uniquely had a positive tree fairly close to the Montgomery neighborhood. So we implemented a response plan around that positive tree, which is a fairly intensive multi-year effort to contain Dutch elm disease because our elm forest in Saskatoon is and has been up to this point Dutch elm disease free. We had one other single case in 2015. 
but it was managed through a similar response. And so right now we're implementing that response plan. We're just in year one, but year one is very critical because in that initial phase, we identify the source of potential infection, remove all elm wood that's within a certain distance of that positive tree to decrease the chances that Dutch elm disease spreads. Yeah, coming from Winnipeg, that's something that really impresses me is how seriously Saskatoon takes the fight against Dutch elm. Winnipeg's is a little less serious because they've lost more. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. The impact is tremendous. I mean, now, especially in Winnipeg with, with emerald ash borer found there and Dutch elm disease established there and cottony ash psyllid on the rise there, there's a lot of challenges to managing that urban forest in Winnipeg. And Saskatoon, we've dealt with some of those issues. Cottony ash salad was very, very challenging for us, resulted in the removal of thousands of trees, significantly altered many landscapes in Saskatoon, many streetscapes. And I mean, the impact of Dutch elm disease would be many times that. Our elm population is very significant in Saskatoon. We have in excess of 30,000 elms, whereas the cottony ash psyllid, which affects certain species of ash, we only had 7,000 hosts and the impact was still considerable. So Dutch elm disease would be, yeah, really catastrophic for our city. It would really change the, change the landscape of Saskatoon. And same with emerald ash borer, because we have a lot of green ash left, which isn't susceptible to cottony ash psyllid. There's about 30,000 of those as well. And that is a really significant part of our urban forest. And when I'm saying those numbers, I'm just referring to the city-owned inventoried trees. So there's many more than that when you include private property trees and trees that are in natural areas and not on our managed inventory. Hmm. Do you have any speculation why Saskatoon has put so much priority on their urban forests? Yeah, I, you know, I think that there was really key people. I don't know all the names, but I think they were very important in getting council's attention on the subject of Dutch elm disease, which really helped shape a number of things, but probably most importantly, our pruning cycle in Saskatoon. We have a seven-year pruning cycle, which is very rare, meaning that all of our trees are visited once every seven years and pruned, removing a lot of deadwood, which really improves the overall health of our urban forest and really helps indirectly and very importantly manage issues like Dutch elm disease. So I think having the pruning cycle that we do is very useful. I think having the awareness around Dutch elm disease is very useful. I think there's been a lot of changes in our city over time. It used to be easy to put a lot of effort and focus on Dutch elm disease. And now there's so many other challenges that it kind of divides our attention and divides the public's attention as well, which is already very divided. Like when we implemented our response plan, we found over 13,000 kilograms of elm wood in and around the positive elm tree. So a few reasons for that, and definitely COVID-19 is a factor there. There's less inspection services this year as a result of that. So that increases the chances that there's elm wood likely to be found. And I also think though, just generally, it's harder to get messaging out there now on elm and the elm regulations, whereas in the past, it was just a more common focus and more frequent message that people heard. And there wasn't so many other types of messages at the time. Mm. Just a pet theory. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. It's hard to get people's attention, I think, now, because there's just a lot of different important initiatives that are asking for and calling for people's attention. Yeah, and I guess we're not sitting down in front of the same two to 10 channels. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's that's what I always think. That's right. It was easier to reach people through the few media channels that were available. You know, you got your message there and you were reaching a large number of people. And now there's many, many, many more 
media channels and it's hard to get on all of them and they're customizable if you don't want to see information on trees or dutch elm disease it's very easy to deselect that type of information yeah that's a it's a huge challenge i have one more question since we're on the topic of trees do you have yeah. a tree in the city that you love or you like to go back and see um there's a number of them i love elm i live in an elm dense neighborhood in saskatoon and i i really enjoy them i'm from ontario so there a lot of the elm are significantly smaller they reach a certain age then they succumb to dutch elm disease but certainly the days of elm lined streets are long gone and so saskatoon with its elm lined streets is very fortunate and they really create a beautiful streetscape so and then there's a few feature elm in particular that i really like to walk by in my neighborhood and teaching my daughter the importance of giving trees a hug as well. But yeah, elm lined streets. And yeah, there's a few really sensational trees in our city that I, I like to stop by once in a while. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, I think I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you so oh, much for yeah. taking the time out of your evening to chat. This has really been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. No, I really appreciate it. I'm happy you thought of me on this topic because this is oh, this was tons of fun. When I spoke to Jeff Boone in November 2020, I was struck by his passion for wildlife. As a self-professed nature nut, he discovered that entomology opened a door for a career in wildlife. I was fascinated by Jeff's extensive knowledge about the population cycles of animals and the threats to our urban forest. I also loved the stories he told about the surprising places that animals can end up. Since we've been talking about human-wildlife interactions on this show, I knew it was essential to provide a wildlife management perspective about these relationships, and I'm very thankful that Jeff was willing to speak to us on that. I learned so much about how the city approaches wildlife concerns, and it was encouraging to know that most conflict can be resolved through education. Since our wild neighbors aren't going anywhere, I hope we can continue to find effective ways to share the city with animals in ways that keep us both safe. Part of this is careful management of food sources and potential habitat, but it also involves compromise. Ultimately, we share this more-than-human world with them, and I learned a lot by speaking to one of the moderators of that relationship. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned.